Welcome to Hacks and Jacks, a fantasy baseball podcast. I am Joe Galina. And as always, I'm joined by my buddy, Scott Chu. How's it going there, Scott? Doing great. Father's Day. Uh, my yeah. my perennial gift uh, for Father's Day is to be left alone for a chunk of the day. <laughs> That's it's, awesome. It's a, very, it's a very dad thing. And it's not that mm-hmm. I don't love my family or anything like that. It's just like, let me have some time to just... You know, usually I run off to like, you know, maybe a bar that's got some baseball games on or something like that. Like mm-hmm. just like, what if I just get left alone for a little while and oh, do whatever awesome. I want to do? <laughs> yeah, it's your day. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and then I'm back on duty. Right. And that's mm-hmm. fine. That's yeah. fine. But just a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you'll be changing diapers again before long, even after your time along. alone. I, right? You know, like the only reason I'm not changing one right now <laughs> is because we're recording this. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we'll, we'll keep this going so that, you know, you uh, don't have to change uh, diapers. That's, it'd be interesting if you were able to podcast and change a diaper at the same time. Maybe we'll try that in the coming weeks. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I won't have a choice at some <laughs> point. That's just going to be something I have to do. Your wife's just going to throw uh, one of your children at you and say, hey, look, th- take care of this for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, it'll be it'll be a two part, you know, sort of success because I'll catch them and then change them. Right. It'll be it'll be great. So like Scott alluded uh, to, it is Father's Day. We're we're recording this on June 18th. It's about 1230. Apologize for not having a podcast last week. All my fault. I uh, had the misfortune of uh, having uh, kidney stone uh, issues last weekend. And for anyone who's ever gone through that, it's just uh, excruciating. So, uh, But glad to be back. Glad to be talking baseball. Glad to be here with Scott and you listening there. So... um, yeah, I guess let's just dive right into it, right? And just, you know, I do a rundown on this and uh, podcast, and one of the things I was focusing on was the fact that Pete Alonso was 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 out and it was going to be out for up to four weeks uh, because of a wrist strain and bone bruise. But all of a sudden, news comes over uh, late this morning that the Mets have activated Pete Alonso. Yeah, and... So this happens sometimes. First of all, like the, you know, the the estimations we get are never exact, right? Uh, you never expect like four weeks means, okay, I need to plan for exactly four weeks. No, nobody, hopefully nobody feels that way. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest things about this is sort of this conversation of how how healthy, right? How healthy is a guy? This doesn't mean like Pete Alonso is back. He needs to be in your lineup immediately, right? There are maybe some very shallow leagues where you can sort of do like a, as Nick would call it a still ill and, and sort of wait around. But like Pete Alonzo is a top 25 hitter, right? You don't have like a lot of those just kind of sitting around on your bench to, to plug in. So, so he goes right back into your lineup. The question is basically whenever we see players come back from injury much, much quicker than we expected, there becomes this question of how healthy are they just because you can play and play well does not mean you can contribute at a, in a fantasy way, the way that we expected. So a good example of this last season, Max Muncy, he was able to come back much, much quicker from surgery. And it, you know, it really ham. I mean, this is sort of like the, the worst case scenario. It hampered his ability to produce, particularly from a power perspective for most of the season. Right. We don't really see until late summer, early fall is when we finally start to see Max Muncy turn it around in 2022. This season, Bryce Harper has been able to play and play well, but the power hasn't been what we've hoped for so Mm -hmm. far. 
that could be, I mean, again, we don't know exactly why, but it could be because he is more than healthy enough to play and be a very good baseball player and also not produce the stat line that fantasy managers were hoping for. Right. So like, cause, because of course managers don't care about our fantasy teams. They don't care about whether you're able to play at maximum value. It's, are you good enough to play? Are you not going to get worse? Right. right. So that's really the decision the managers are making. If I put you in now, am I sure you won't get worse? Right. Do you have an opportunity to maybe hopefully still even heal, but even if not, do you have the opportunity to not get worse? They must feel that way about Pete Alonzo right now, mm -hmm. whether or not they're right, we're going to find out, but they feel that way about Pete Alonzo right now. You need to put them in your lineup, but mm -hmm. if the power is light to start out with, there's a pretty compelling narrative as to why, which is he's still kind of getting over this. The problem with that narrative is there is nothing you can do about it. Absolutely nothing. The the trade, you know, if that's happening, you know, just like with Max Muncy last year, the trade market just kind of evaporates. Nobody wants a guy who might still be playing hurt, right? Nobody wants to trade you for him. And it's usually not as though you can bench him because you just like we don't know how healthy he is, we don't know when he will be as healthy as we hope. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't know when that's going to happen. So it's like it's this unfortunate thing where you know about it, but you can't do anything about it, especially right. with a player of Pete Alonzo's caliber. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's a very helpless feeling. Hopefully he is, you know, super healthy, ready to go, is the polar bear we know and love. And I'm not saying he won't be. I'm just saying if he's not, you're kind of stuck. <laughs> there's nothing yeah, yeah. you can really do about it. So it's not like there's a guy on the wire you can use to supplement. Just, you know, especially if you're in a weekly league, the best thing you could do is say, I want to make sure I have some power contingencies, right? If I've been really struggling with power with Alonzo out, I should still be trying to address that. Just at another position. Yeah. And it's important that to note that with specifically his injury, which was a wrist injury when it comes to power hitters, some sometimes uh, wrist injuries do uh, hamper a power hitters ability to hit the long ball. But I, I, you know, look, the Mets have been struggling and, you know, 75% of Alonzo is better than a hundred percent of a, a ton of players out there. So, uh, maybe even the Mets might've said, Hey, psychologically, it's better for the team to see him out there. It gives us that, that little psychological boost, just having him in the lineup every day. And, uh, also maybe, you know, opposing pitchers, um, you know, uh, the fact that he's in the lineup, you know, could help the rest of the Mets lineup. So, but you, you, you do bring up good points. And like you said, you're not going to be sitting Alonso because you just want to see how healthy he is, you know? So, um, but uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking, you know, hot and cold players talking about uh, a few players. And uh, one guy I'll bring up uh, right off the bat is uh, Gunnar Henderson, who we had spoken about in previous uh, podcasts, so, uh, Scott, you're looking at his last 10 games, batting 385 with uh, an 1133 OPS, four home runs, 11 RBI. Uh, is this the Gunnar Henderson that we've all been waiting for? Or is this where, you know, fantasy managers might look to put him on the block and trade him while he's hot and at his highest value? So, uh, if if you could, let, let's address the trade thing first, because it, it comes up a lot. and. The toughest thing about it is, is any is anyone in your league willing to pay for Gunnar Henderson as a top 100 hitter right now, right? Like last week, I left Gunnar Henderson around 100 on the hitter list, and lots of people let me know that they thought I was nuts and that it, you know, 
the the classic like if you rank him this high then your list doesn't matter or uh or, or just generally speaking like um he's you know like if you still start you know if you still roster him you know you're you're in trouble and and i get it right now i liked what he'd been doing at the plate i'd seen improvements at the plate before the production really kind of hit in uh that but this isn't to me say like, see, I was right. See, see, because I still well, it does may make you very look real well. good, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, for a week. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that number one, there's no real way to know if this is like the true Gunnar Henderson. The sample is so small that we're usually not going to see like major skill changes in this kind of a sample. The thing about Gunnar Henderson is that regardless of the slow start, uh, we do know that Gunnar Henderson is an elite level prospect. This was a guy who was at the top of many prospect leagues. He he wasn't necessarily like the the kind of guy that like Ellie De La Cruz is, where it's like he could be the next like Fernando Tatis Jr., but he was very, very well regarded as a prospect. He's very, I mean, because he's he is loaded with talent. And the thing about these really talented players is you try to hold them as long as you can. Look, if you cut Gunnar Henderson in a 12 teamer, you were not wrong. He looked awful. He looked awful for a very long time. He had been beginning to lose playing time, but you know, with Gunnar Henderson and by extension, you know, like a Michael Harris, you know, Michael Harris, a second. The thing about these guys is that it's, it's the kind of thing where you need to, you need to just accept that. Like we don't know yet and that they are capable of being absolutely monstrous for short periods of time. And there are very, very few indicators that a player is going to stay consistent going forward. If we had those kinds of indicators, right, we'd all be a whole lot better at this. We would all be just these amazing geniuses. If all I could do was like point to a stat, uh, you know, one thing I can say is if you look at some of the underlying skills of Gunder Henderson, you're not necessarily seeing a ton of things that like jump out in the pages a lot better. Uh, it's in fact almost a little contradictory, right? So, uh, if you are one of our PL plus members, which you should be, uh, if you're not, that's okay. We have these rolling ability charts that, uh, that kind of tell you about like, how is a player doing? We've talked about them before decision value, contact ability, things like that. What we've seen from Gunnar Henderson is this throughout the season, he has really dropped off his decision value. Right. He started out the year in the up like above the 90th percentile. And right now, on a rolling 400 pitch basis, he's seen, you know, probably close to a thousand pitches. He's at the 10th percentile now in decision value. He does, he is not necessarily making good decisions. However, what we have seen is his contact ability go up really in the opposite direction. He starts the season in about the 25th percentile on contact frequency. Our con, so our decision ability metric is all about are you, are you swinging at pitches that players can do damage to? And are you taking pitches that you can't do damage to decision value is not taking the actual result. It's simply saying players who swung, you know, it's a pitch by pitch basis and players who's, you know, if you, when players swing at this pitch, this location, this type of pitch, this velocity, this is the outcome. Our model generally expects, Right. Is it good or bad? And then with that, we see our players adding to the, our players doing better than what we expect when they choose, you know, uh, by choosing to swing or not swing or not. Right. Like if the outcome is better not to swing, then you basically get points for not swinging. 
Mm-hmm. So Gunnar Henderson is swinging at a lot of stuff that we don't really expect players to do very well with. Right. But on the other hand, he's also making contact with pitches. We don't expect him to make contact with, right? We've, I've actually talked about this before. Contact ability and decision value often can be like sort of inverse with young hitters and that they can have poor decision value, but be successful because they have elite contact ability, right? Because uh, basically if they're hitting stuff that, you wouldn't expect them to hit. Go ahead and let him swing, right? Gunnar Henderson is a young, strong hitter. He's got power. You don't need him to make perfect decisions because uh, he can get away with not doing that. It's not the best path to success. In fact, that's actually what Michael Harris was doing last year, That and it's not working for him so well this year. It's a pretty thin margin for error there. But we have seen his contact ability really take off lately. And with that takeoff and contact ability, we're seeing for Gunnar Henderson the positive results, right? We're also, the power's always been there, but now the power is above the 90th percentile for his last, you know, his last several, uh, you know, rolling seven, 75 batted ball events. So basically when he does, he's making contact a lot more often than we expect. And when he does make contact, it's a lot harder than we expect, right? So that's what we're seeing with Gunnar Henderson. Now, if he can keep even most of that, and then we see the decision value get better, that's when we see the ideal Gunnar Henderson. Right. Cause I don't think he's the type of player that we want slapping at everything. A good example of a player with bad decision value who can always get away with it with is a Luis Arias, right? Because he's not trying to do big things with every pitch. He's trying to put every single ball in play. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to make good decisions because he can put just about anything in play, right? He like, I wouldn't be shocked if one day he did the old Vlad Guerrero, like take a bounced pitch and put it, you know, put it in the outfield grass, <laughs> right? Like that is something Luis Arias can do because he has elite bat control, elite hand-eye coordination. So he doesn't need to make good decisions. Gunnar Henderson is not that type of player. Gunnar right. Henderson needs to make at least mediocre decisions, right? Then use that contact ability and power to make the most of them, right? He can get away with some mistakes because he has that kind of power, that kind of contact ability. And he can be a plus player. So I love seeing that the power has gotten stronger. I love seeing the contact ability has taken a lot of steps forward. Now we got to hope that he can start making better decisions. Because again, when a guy hits a pitch that's six inches inside and at the top of the strike zone, there's just not much they can do with that. Yeah, you could put it in play, but your potential for, you know, a double or a home run is really, really low because that's a really difficult pitch to do anything with. The fact that you make contact with it at all is a huge win, right? So we want to see the improved decision-making ability for Gunnar Henderson. And that's when I'll really feel like, okay, now it's time to start talking about Gunnar Henderson again as a definite top 75 hitter, definite top 60 hitter, maybe even definite top 50 hitter. But until that happens, he's going to kind of float around 100 or even get worse if we see the power and contactability fall off. That's really the analysis I'm trying to do when I think about a player like Gunnar Henderson and I'm doing the hitter list and thinking, okay, how, you know, am I excited about what's coming? And right now it's, it's a little tepid, right? It's a little like, ah, I like the ability, but the decision-making value, the decision-making is not there. Pitchers can eventually take advantage of that by just stopping. Like they'll just stop giving you stuff to hit. Uh, I'm going to do a a pivot. We actually talked about before the show. I'm going to do it now. And I want to talk about Christopher Morell, right? So Christopher Morell is a guy on this, on this podcast in the hitter list. I've said, I don't like Christopher Morell. Right. Because the thing about Christopher Morrell is that his contact ability was no good and his decision making was terrible. He swung at everything. He was bad at hitting everything. But when he did connect, he sent it into the bleachers. Right. He had a home run in what, like nine straight games or something silly. 
Mm-hmm. That was that was the type of player where I'm like, yeah, no thanks. This fades. We see this over and over. These guys who um, get thrown a lot of strikes, and then pitchers eventually start saying, yeah, how about I just not do that? I'll never put anything near the heart of the plate because you're going to swing at it anyway. And you're not going to be able to do anything with it. So, you know, even when he was hitting nine, you know, a home run in nine straight games, he was striking out like 40% of the time. Shift to now, right? So he starts heating up and I'm kind of not that interested. I take a deep dive literally this morning, right? And I go, okay, is Christopher Morrell doing anything different? Because I noticed in the game logs and on the stat line, he's not striking out so much. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's changed. It's his decision-making. He goes from one of the worst decision-makers in the league to, for the last about 100 pitchers or so, one of the best decision-makers in the league. Does this mean I think Christopher Morrell has changed forever? No. I, I, I mean, this, this could just be a phase, right? Something could change, and pitchers will find new ways to deceive him. But right now, I'm very excited about what Christopher Morrell is doing, even though it's not as hot as it was the first time, because I see the underlying skill change for Christopher Morrell. I see the change in decision-making value. So now that he's making good decisions, he can use that power for good, right? Like he can, he can take that power and he can hit the pitches that can be put places, right? His zone contact up until now had been terrible. It's getting much better because he's swinging at the right pitches in the zone. Just because it's in the zone doesn't mean we actually want a guy to hit it, right? Like you want to be in a position where you can take really good strikes because when a guy paints the bottom inside corner with a slider, there's not much you can do with it. It's just a ground out, right? But when you have the decision-making ability to take the balls early in the count, and then when they throw that, you can lay off it and wait for the next pitch, right? That's when you can really see guys capitalize on the pitches they want to hit. Nobody goes up to the box thinking, I want a slider breaking right at my kneecap. Like nobody says that nobody wants, or like their ankle, right? Nobody wants that pitch. When you have good decision-making value, you can wait, let that pitch go and get something else. It's a classic Juan Soto kind of thing, right? He only, he doesn't swing a lot because he knows what he wants to swing at. And he forces pitchers to pitch, not just in the zone, but close to it because he'll, he'll run that count up to three balls and say, you better not, you know, you like you're going to walk me if you don't give me something I want and he'll take the walk. Christopher Morrell would not do that right now. It's not even so much that he's walking as much as it is. He's making better decisions. He's hitting the pitches that can be punished. So now Christopher Morrell, even though it's not even as hot as it was the first time, it's much more exciting because the underlying skill is there. There's a dramatic change in his decision-making value. That's when I start saying, Hey, my previous read on a player, I'm willing to change that because I'm seeing not just results, right? Any, anyone can be good for 50 at bats without changing anything, right? They can just get hot, right? The ball looks like a beach ball when it's coming up to them and they just, but they don't change anything. Christopher Morrell has changed something. He's changed the decision-making ability. He's changed what pitches he's willing to swing at and what pitches he takes. And by doing that, I am now much more excited about the power speed combo he brings to the table. Whereas before when he'd swing at literally anything, I was much less interested because even the Cubs weren't interested, right? They platooned him immediately when the hot streak ended. That's changed now. Very excited. And that's the kinds of things I'm looking at for players like Gunnar Henderson and Michael Harris. The second, where is the, is the skill changing? Right. Or is this just a random, you know, Gunnar Henderson and Michael Harris second have the ability to be really, really good for 50 plate appearances without changing anything. Right. But if they don't change the underlying problems, they just go back to being the disappointments they've been so far this season. So that's why I like the Gunnar Henderson's making more contact. I like that he's hitting the ball really hard, but that's still like, that's, that's the physical ability. 
the mental ability, that decision-making value, when I see that start going back up, it doesn't even have to be good. Even if it's just kind of mediocre, that to me will be a big change for him and something that's when I really get back on board. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we had spoken briefly before the podcast where, you know, you could talk hot and cold players, but like you're alluding to now, if we could find a reason uh, backing up why this player is hot right now or, or cold. And especially when it comes to a young player, yeah, you love to see a young player make these improvements and it coincides with a hot streak. Hopefully that hot streak uh, isn't just a, a passing phase, but uh, good analysis on your part. And um, you mentioned briefly uh, Ellie De La Cruz and we spoke about uh, De La Cruz in our previous podcast and he got the call up. And one of the things you were concerned about was the strikeouts and, you know, He's a dynamic, exciting player to watch. First 10 games, six stolen bases, hasn't been caught yet, um, but has struck out 15 times in his first 10 games. So I'll just throw this out at you. Uh, and uh, my buddy, uh, the legend Lenny Melnick, asked this on his Delhi podcast. If you had to pick one or the other, who do you trust more? Uh, you know, moving forward, at least we'll say for the, the medium term, I'm not talking, you know, career wise, but um, and it, I'd be interested to get your take because you compared Dela Cruz to Tatis. Uh, so Gunnar Henderson or Ellie Dela Cruz? Yeah. So well, let me, let me first say Ellie Dela Cruz. I did not think he'd get the call. Then of course they have two injuries in the outfield that gives yeah. them the ability to move Spencer steer into the outfield, shift around their infield. Uh, and there's going to be another roster crunch coming. I don't think it affects Ellie Dela Cruz directly, but with Joey Votto, Nick Senzel, Will Myers, uh, a lot of their guys all coming back by the end of this month. Senzel's already back. Uh, I'm really interested to see what Cincinnati Cincinnati does with that roster, especially because they want to get Christian Encarnacion Strand in there, but yeah. I don't see how they do it. They've got they so want, many and corner. so do I. <laughs> yeah, but, but I don't know how they do it because they've got so many corner guys that are just on this roster that they don't know what to do with, and they can't all be hurt all the time. So anyway, with that, I, I'm going to I'm going to pick Ellie De La Cruz. And the main reason for that is simply because if I'm in a 12 team league or so I am playing for upside. I think Gunnar Henderson is the floor play because there's Gunnar Henderson's been pretty bad so far, but I think that his overall skill set will keep him from totally flame. Like I don't think Ellie De La Cruz will flame out either, but Gunnar Henderson is less likely to go. over for 30 with 20 strikeouts and Ellie De La Cruz. And that's simply because Ellie De La Cruz is a fair, you know, he's a pretty free swinging guy who has 45 major league plate appearances to his name, right? So whenever you see that, I mean, he just doesn't have a very long track record. Stolen bases will always be there. He doesn't have to hit to get steals. We know that because like he went hitless for like three straight games and he still stole two bases, right? Like <laughs> and he had one walk and he, you know, he got on base. He, he had one like, walk plus hit. He had one walk, no hits, and he stole two bases because he basically got on base twice and stole both times. Yeah, he's got so, a 356 OBP. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I I'm picking Ellie De La Cruz because the speed floor will always be there even if like the ratio floor could really fall out at some points. With Ellie De La Cruz, though, I am curious. I want to see that power start coming back. I loved seeing him. Yes, he got a couple days off or he got a day off. I loved seeing him hit that double. He hadn't hit an extra base hit since his second game right? He hit a double, a triple and a home run in his first two games. He didn't have another extra base hit again until yesterday. 
So I, I liked seeing that, but it, there's a lot of adjustments that Ellie De La Cruz needs to make. Ellie De La Cruz and Tatis are similar in that they have explosive power, explosive speed, but obviously I wouldn't like put him on the same level as Tatis right now. Cause Tatis is one of the best hitters in baseball and healthy. I'm not sure Ellie De La Cruz can do that yet. Tatis got over his contact problems. Ellie De La Cruz still needs to do that. It's been a little better lately, but he still needs to prove that he can get over his contact issues. Gunnar Henderson has like a lot of things he needs to fix. And even if he fixes them, the ceiling is lower than Ellie De La Cruz, right? Considerably, right? Cause Gunnar Henderson is never going to go 30, 20. That's just not part of his game. He can't do that. Uh, maybe 25, 10, right? Maybe if he really shows off the power, he might have like a 28 home run season, but he just doesn't have the ceiling. And so when I'm looking at immediate, you know, when I'm looking at short and medium term, like that floor Gunnar Henderson could provide, I think long-term is safer because Ellie De La Cruz is very boomer bust long-term, but give me the ceiling, give me the sky high ceiling of Ellie De La Cruz. And I, I hope it didn't sound like I don't like Ellie De La Cruz. Everybody wants Ellie De La Cruz to be good because everybody wants good players in baseball. Yes, right? Ellie De La Cruz, watch, fun to he, watch. Yeah, he's really fun to watch, and I don't think he gets sent down unless one of two things happens. Number one, for seventy-five or more plate appearances, that strikeout rate stays at thirty, you know, close to thirty-five percent or worse, right? And also, his performance continues to drop. Right. If both those things happen at the same time, that's one path because you don't want to just leave a guy striking out 35% of the time in the majors and just wreck his confidence, wreck his growth. Do I think it, he will go down necessarily? No, but then the Reds have a decision to make, which is, is it good for his development to be up here and flailing? Right. Especially, you know, not, I'm not talking about like 50 plate appearances, which is usually just like 11 or 12 games. I'm talking like 75 to 100 plate appearances. If we're still seeing that kind of strikeout rate, that's going to suggest that he's not able to fix this at the major league level. He needs to go down and fix it and then come back. Right. Mm. So that'd be the first way. The second way, of course, is uh, a, a more classic. He just isn't, you know, like regardless of strikeout rate, if he's just not able to hit, they're not going to want to hold him there. Right, especially with how like crowded that roster is, if they if he starts not you know not being able to perform and the Reds want to keep winning games, then they're going to say, look, we have to win games, and we can't you know if we have an excuse to send Ellie down, we'll do it. I don't think either of those things happens, and the more likely one is that he strikes out too much and the performance suffers, and then the Reds kind of don't have like the Reds getting out and say, oh, we've got a reason to send him down now, and that helps us clear up some of the other roster clogging we've got going on hmm. but ultimately i mean i i put in a huge bid on him in nfbc because i do believe that he has you know it's that monstrous upside that i don't think any player called up this year is going to have mm -hmm. uh it's just his floor is because of the nature of his talent which is very aggressive at the plate and a limited ability to make contact with you know the types of pitches he's going to see at the major league level right now the floor is really low simply because pitchers can get the best of him right now. He's it's, it takes time to make these adjustments, especially for a player like Ellie, who's been better than everyone he's played against up till now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, in uh, my NFBC league, uh, the winning bid was like 47% of uh, original fab. So I didn't have enough left, but I put a big, bit on them as well but i think this would be a good place for us to take a quick break our first break of the podcast when we come back we'll talk some uh 
first baseman that are swinging a hot bat. Then a little later on, we'll talk about Luis Matos, outfielder for the Giants. And we'll talk about them right after this. All right, we're back. Hacks and Jacks, a fantasy baseball podcast. Joe Galina and Scott Chu. And uh, like I said, before we started the podcast, I was thinking that we were going to you know, look for some replacements for uh, Pete Alonso, but he's back. He's back. So, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to talk about a much maligned first baseman um, in Jose Abreu, first baseman for the Astros, who's all of a sudden swinging a pretty hot bat um, and uh, probably dropped in a lot of leagues, Scott. But in his last 11 games, he's had three home runs, three doubles, 10 RBI. Uh, 939 OPS with a 318 batting average. Uh, you know, we had hoped that this is what we'd see from Abreu. Everyone was excited when he signed uh, with the Astros. So, what are we thinking about Abreu? Is this real? So, I am someone who's been telling folks to drop Jose Abreu since I don't know the end of April, and I'm also not one of the folks telling you to pick him back up. And it actually goes back to the conversation we had before, right? It, has Jose Abreu changed anything, right? And not just anything, because last season, he only hit, what, 15 home runs? The, the ceiling really changed for Jose Abreu, mm-hmm. right? You had to, the the hope, the excitement was that, okay, he's out of Chicago, even though that was a an excellent place for him to hit. Uh, he, it's not like he went to a better environment, but he did get to a better lineup. And the thought was, okay, if he finds any of that power, you know, maybe... Maybe we've got something here. The problem is he's turned into like a lesser version of Yuli Gurriel, the guy they got rid of uh, when they signed Jose Abreu to a three-year deal. Mm. Um, and Gur- Gurriel's been kind of good lately. And I was almost thinking like, man, it's too bad they don't have a guy like Yuli Gurriel at first base. <laughs> uh, so Jose Abreu, uh, he he's always had really good contact ability. He, he is able to make contact with a lot of pitches. And it's actually gotten worse. Uh, especially lately, he's actually below MLB average for his last about a hundred pitches, right? Um, yeah, at one point he was up in the 90th percentile this season. He wasn't doing anything with those pitches, but he was connecting with them. He's gotten much worse with contact ability and it's not as though his decision value has become a whole lot better, right? Like it has improved throughout the season, but it's still sitting at around like the 30th percentile, right? So Jose Abreu is making bad decisions and making less contact, and so at that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe he's hitting for more power. And we do see a little bit of a power spike, and it's still well below MLB average, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's at about zero expected extra bases added when he makes contact. That means he's doing about what our model expects, which is actually worse than the average MLB player. Like a lot of them, when they do make contact, they it's a little bit better. Uh, I could go into why, but it's not really a valuable conversation right this second. He's not doing anything different. In fact, he's worse at most of the things I hoped he'd been better at, right? The only thing he's like decidedly improved upon is his strike zone judgment, which is basically it's less about, is he making a good decision and more about when he takes, is it a ball? When he swings, is it a strike? He's about MLB average on that. Now, when earlier this season, he was down in the 10th percentile. That's it. There's nothing changed here. There's nothing that makes me think that Jose Abreu is doing anything differently that will lead to him being Jose Abreu of years past, right? All that has changed is the results. Mm -hmm. And when all that has changed is the results, I'm usually kind of like, okay, cool. Right. Again, 
lots of MLB caliber players can do this for short periods of time. It's just like Christopher Morrell at the beginning of the season. It was amazing results with the same exact approach and skills he'd been showing us before, which had flamed out times before, right? Jose Abreu was doing the same stuff he'd been doing earlier this season when he stunk, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like the stuff he was doing should have led to better results. Like they are right now, but not for any good reason. It's just the, you know, it's the will of the baseball gods, right? Like they're letting some better stuff happen, but he's not doing anything different. So I kind of don't care. Hmm. All right. So uh, I talked about, uh, you know, Alonso coming back, but there is a fantasy first baseman that uh, hit the IL. Actually, his season's over uh, that, uh, you know, some fantasy managers are going to need to replace. And I'm talking about Vinny Pasquantino. I, I like the uh, nickname that they gave him, Vinny Pasquatch, because I'm a big Sasquatch fan, <laughs> by the way. So uh, season ending uh, surgery to repair a torn labrum in his right shoulder. So um, just real quick, I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, his season still showed some good plate discipline, you know, the moderate power was expected. Uh, He finishes the year batting 247 in 61 games with nine home runs and 26 RBI. So uh, StatCast says that 247 batting average you know, should be 279. I, I don't know if you have a, a quick uh, assessment of, of what you think about Pasquantino. And and I guess at the same time, we could talk about his replacement, Nick Prado, uh, power hitting uh, first baseman. Overall stats, pretty good on him. Uh, walk rate is good, but the good chance that the strikeouts are going to catch up to him. He's striking out at a 33% rate in his uh, first 45 games. And, uh, you know, lots of power, but with you know, you know the saying, lots of power uh, comes a uh, great responsibility. I mean, can you trust Prado long-term in our fantasy teams? No, but I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Vinny Pasquantino, a guy who, um, again, I I really love what Vinny Pasquantino is able to do at the dish, right? His decision-making ability remains very, very strong. He knows when to take pitches, when not to take pitches, He walks, I mean, he's like a great points league first baseman. The problem has been, and the same problem we talked about in the preseason, is is there plus power here, right? At least compared to other top 10 first basemen in fantasy, right? And unfortunately, what we saw this season is that Vinny Pasquantino can give you the ratios. Um, If he was on a good team, he could give you counting stats, but he's not. He's on a terrible, terrible team. So ratios are then hard to come by. And also plays in a home run park that suppresses power and he ain't got a lot of it in the first place. Right. Right. He does not have home run power. I think his ceiling now feels it's more like 22 to 25, like 20 home runs is what to expect from Brandy Pasquitino. That's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Right. There, there are paths to fantasy success, right? Uh, Nate Lowe isn't showing us the power uh, that we saw before. And he can still be really, really good because he's got the good ratios. He's on a good team, very importantly, on a very good team. So he can pile up counting stats, right? But Vinny Pasquantino doesn't have that path because he's on a terrible, terrible team. So even if he was healthy, the margin of error becomes very, very thin. And without that extra power, without being able to say, like, there are times when Nate Lowe could hit for tons of power, uh, which we saw him do last season, get close to 30 home runs, that without that, it starts we start talking about Vinny P as a high floor player with a moderate ceiling. Mm -hmm. It's not like that's not a good thing. It's just not very exciting. 
right? Yeah. It, it's not, I, I think there was hope because of the great plate skills that he could be above that. And we're just not seeing that yet. I'm not saying it'll never happen. I'm just saying I am going to be skeptical until I see changes in, especially like his ability to punish the balls he does hit. Miguel Vargas mm-hmm. has this problem too, where uh, Vargas can have really, really good plate skills, although they've been kind of up and down this season. But like he doesn't punish the balls he hits enough for me to say there's elite upside here. There's upside, but not elite upside. And that's kind of where, uh, you know, I sort of see Vinny P right now, just, but as of course a much better version than Miguel Vargas. But now we'll talk about Nick Prado and why I, I, I got excited for a little when he started leading off and it was actually before Vinny P went down for the season, Nick Prado started leading off and he actually got worse. He became less useful as a leadoff hitter. He's this weird, like Schwarber type leadoff hitter because he strikes out a ton, but he also walks. So there was like, Hey, maybe we can do something with that. But Prado has a, has a problem and it's that he's really bad at making contact and he's gotten worse. Like he went from bad to really, really bad this season at making contact. You know, our contact metric has never really had him much better than the 25th percentile in the league right now. It's actually at the worst it's been It's close to the 10th percentile. He's just not very good at it. Right. And again, you can make up for that by making good decisions, but he's gotten a lot worse at making decisions this season. Early on in the year, he was up in about the 75th percentile making decisions, so making pretty good decisions. So even though he was missing a lot, he was making good enough decisions that he was connecting enough, right? He could miss a couple, but he'd connect eventually and he'd do good things with it because it was a good pitch to hit. Now he's actually considerably below MLB average in decision-making. Right. So not only is he bad at hitting stuff, he's bad at picking the stuff to try to hit. That's a horrible, horrible combination. And he's been getting away with it because he has a lot of power. Uh, There's a ton of power in Prado's bat. That's not really a question. And he's still hitting the ball really hard. Like, don't get me wrong. He still does hit it very hard, but he doesn't hit very many things. So I don't have a ton of power data. He is above MLB average. He's like 75th percentile in power. The problem is I don't think he's going to connect with enough things to make that work. Hmm. So Prado is a guy who he's a streamer at best for me. He, you know, it's weird too, because as much as he strikes out, you'd think that he's really, really, really aggressive. He's not. He's in fact, extremely passive at the plate but he still strikes out a ton because Nick Prado just has really bad zone contact. He's bad at making contact with things in the zone. When he chooses to swing, he does not hit the ball nearly as often as we'd expect a major leaguer to hit the ball. That makes the, this type of player, we've talked about this kind of player before Brent Rooker is this kind of player. Jack Sawinski has been this kind of player. Even when they walk a lot, it's really hard for them to be successful for long periods of time because they're so streaky, right? Like this type of player almost always lends itself to extreme highs and lows because when they are able to make contact, they're in a groove. They can really punish the ball, but then they go back into these phases of they just swing and miss at everything uh, when they do decide to swing. So they take strikes and then when they do decide to swing, they can't follow it off. They can't make contact at all. So not very excited about Nick Prado. I think there is upside like long-term, but he's like a dynasty-only play. Like in a keeper league, Nick Prado doesn't really do anything for me either. you got to be in a dynasty league, and even then, it's more like a corner. You hope that he kind of can develop into a corner infielder, mm. but that's about it. And I'd love to say that there's like a boost in OBP because he takes walks, but his ability to make contact is so bad. And the type of contact he makes doesn't lend itself generally to good batting averages. He's got an okay one right now, but I don't expect that to stay. So what you're stuck with is this guy who has terrible ratios kind of all the time, and you hope that he hits enough home runs to make up for it. Hmm. 
So, so again, not, not a huge Nick Prado fan. Right. Uh, I'll throw another couple of names at you, see if you think they might be better replacements. And it sounds like they probably would be <laughs> based on your assessment on Prado. But uh, so Nolan Jones uh, went up 14 spots on your hitter list uh, in his first 21 games for the Rockies, four homers, 12 RBI, uh, batting 324 with a 400 OBP. And his home away splits, pretty good. He's batting 355 at home. 300 away and then another guy i'll just bring out uh, to you and uh is luke Rayleigh, who's a first baseman outfielder for the tampa bay rays and 54 games 12 home runs 27 rbi uh batting 270 uh, also stole uh, has stolen eight bases so um i know that uh you know and it's great that the pitcher list community taking you to task you know, I don't think it's great that they're taking you to task, but it's great that they're reading your stuff, Scott, and taking a look at the uh, the the hitter list that you put out because they were, you know, you. I was reading what you wrote, and it, it looks like that they um, contributed to you uh, adding him to the hitter list. Yeah, yeah, I had kind of just been not paying enough attention to Luke Rayley. Uh, I, I am now Luke Rayley interesting guy you know he's a ray which means he's gonna run they let everybody run all the time the rays have the most stolen bases in baseball by a wide wide margin so he is running plenty he's uh, he, he still platoons a lot which kind of stinks but he's the large side of platoon so it's not quite as bad luke Rayleigh's not very good uh at making contact on our contact metric right he does not make contact quite as often as you want but he does hit the ball hard when he does. So he's sort of able to make up for it and he makes decent decisions. So it kind of works out. I don't mind Luke Rayleigh. Uh, you just, he's much better in daily leagues, or at least you have to be a little forward thinking because if they do face three lefties in a row, I'd expect him to sit twice. Hmm. Uh, but that just doesn't happen very often in today's game. You just don't see, you, you don't run into that many lefties. Very few teams Ross like have that many lefties in the rotation. So he's one guy, you know, Nolan Jones, I wanted to jump him up even higher, but I realized like he had this really great hot streak. He hit uh, three home runs in five games, but it was all at home, right? He's uh he should be on the last leg of a long road trip, right? So he's got today. And then I think he's got one more series on the road before he heads back to Coors Field. And I had been saying that I think I thought we'd learn a lot about Nolan Jones on this road trip. Uh, he he had to go to Boston. He actually not ju- not just road trip, but an East Coast road trip. So sort of like, kind of the extremes in terms of like changing your environment. It, you know, as much as professional athletes can adjust to this, it's hard to change time zones, especially two time zones, right? So he goes from mountain to East Coast. He has to go against Atlanta's rotation, and he has to play against, uh, you know, Boston, who doesn't have a great rotation, but uh, he's still, you know, it, it's a different environment. It's a very different park than the one he's used to. And he's performed well, right? He's not striking out too much, right? He's taking walks. He hasn't, he hasn't shown a ton of power on this short trip, but he does have hits, right? He's got five hits. One of them's a double so far. So I'm liking what I'm seeing from Nolan Jones. I think long-term that might be the guy I'm after the most, right? I do think he has a high ceiling. This was once a highly regarded prospect. It's just that Mm. contact has been a problem, right? He, was striking out just way, way too much in his minor league career. Uh, He struck out a lot when he came up last season, but it was a lot better in AAA this year. I mean, maybe the, it was like the best strike, one of the best strikeout rates we've seen from him ever at any stop, 
right? The last time he had a strikeout rate that low under, you know, under 25% or so was when he was 19 in low A, right? In 2017. So a significant change. And he started walking more. So he is striking out about 31. He is striking and not about, he is striking out 31.3% of the time right now. And he may continue to strike out close to that 30% rate. I think that'll sort of oscillate because at home he'll strike out less on the road. He'll strike out more. That's just a Colorado thing. You have to accept that about Rockies hitters. They can't fight that for very long, but uh, the, you know, StatCast is telling us that actually, you know, you look at this, he's interesting too, because you look at that Babbitt of 452 and you say that can't like so much of this must be luck. Right. But that's not necessarily the case. See Babbitt one doesn't count home runs, but two it is sort of a, also a function of how hard are you hitting the ball? Right? Like, is he lucky right now? Yes, but not as lucky as you think, right? So if you go to our, you know, if you go to our player pages on pitcher list, we show you a stat that I think most people should at least be aware of. And that's expected BABIP. Statcast is really good at telling us about luck, right? And our version of Statcast is even better because we started adding in things like directionality, right? What, what direction did you hit the ball? Like not just, was it a grounder, but what direction was the grounder? Because a grounder up the middle is a lot more likely to be a hit than a pulled grounder, right? Those often get scooped up by a third baseman or shortstop. If you're a right-handed hitter. Uh, and if you're a lefty, it can be a little different, but we are showing that his expected BABIP is 352. So it's actually better than you think, right? And not only that, but the expected like power, his expected slugging of 631 by our metric actually suggests that while the batting average is a little lucky, the power has actually been a little unlucky despite the fact that he's slugging 588. Hmm. Obviously, I don't think he's a 600 slugger long-term, but he has been so far. That's another thing I do want to point out about expected stats. Expected stats, I know I say this all the time, so apologies to folks that have listened to me more than once, but expected stats don't tell us what to expect going forward. They tell us what we should have expected up till now, right? So Nolan Jones, is doing a really nice job hitting the ball hard, but he has been lucky. It's not because of his BABIP though, right? His BABIP is really high simply because he's hitting 32.6% line drives, right? That's really, really difficult to do for any extended period of time, right? Right now it's the 98th percentile. Anytime you see a line drive rate above 25 or 30%, you have to know that that's going to come down. But what will that turn into? I think for Nolan Jones, that's going to turn into fly balls. So we're going to see some more home runs. Nolan Jones is the guy I'm really after if I need a replacement first baseman. Someone hasn't already scooped him, especially because he's got a homestand coming. That was a lot about Nolan Jones and not so much about Luke Rayleigh. Luke Rayleigh's fine. If you want to go that route, that's fine. Keep in mind, he may be platooned from time to time. Nolan Jones has a lower floor than Luke Rayleigh because if Luke Rayleigh starts struggling, the Rays will simply just protect him against left-handed pitching and not put him out there. But if you want to play the ceiling play, it is Nolan Jones. I think that he could be a very high power, very useful guy. He could I think he definitely has the upside to be one of the Rockies that you start on the road. Hmm. Okay. So I think this would be a good spot for us to take our second break. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, Luis Matos, rookie outfielder for the Giants, and uh, Bo Naylor, catcher for the Guardians, just got called up. want to get your take on Bo Naylor as well. And we'll talk about them right after this. All right, we're back on Hacks and Jacks, a fantasy baseball podcast. Joe Galina and Scott Chu with you. Uh, Happy Father's Day to everyone. I know that this uh, podcast 
is going to debut on Monday, the day after Father's Day. But we're recording this just as a reference point for you on uh, June 18th. It's about uh, 1.15 p.m. Eastern Time. And as of this time, we don't have the San Francisco Giants lineup. But, uh, you know, Mitch Hanniger uh, having surgery due to a uh, right forearm fracture going to be out 10 weeks. And that opens up playing time for rookie Luis Matos. Um, and so, like I said, the, the Giants lineup not out yet. So I don't know if he's playing today on Sunday, but so far has three starts. Uh, and in those th- three games, five walks, no strikeouts, you know, three for eight, three seventy five. That means nothing. But when you look at uh, Matos, uh, his minor league uh, stats, it looks like he could probably have 2020 potential. Um, 301, 362, 480, triple slash. Uh, good discipline, really good strikeout rates in his minor league career. Uh, highest K rate in his minor league career is just about 16%. And I know that uh, minor league and major league uh, stats don't always translate, but uh, the, the the major league average is 22.7%. So a 60%, 16% for Matos is very good. Has batted second, sixth, and eighth so far. But if he continues to get on base, Scott, I would think that, uh, you know, he'd probably – uh, move up that, you know, that in that lineup uh, to a, you know, one of the top spots. Yeah. At least against lefties, mm-hmm. right. Uh, th- this, the, the giants love to mix and match. They've got, you know, against righties, I think it'd be hard to unseat like Lamont Wade jr. Jock Peterson, who just came back, uh, Michael Conforto, they want to cram all those guys into the top half of the lineup. So I'm not entirely sure that he could, he could break in all the time, but there's definitely room there. Uh, to move up definitely against lefties and, and at least be closer to the middle of the lineup, right? Like right now, Patrick Bailey bats fairly high in the lineup and he could absolutely take over for him. Luis Matos is a, a guy who up until this season, I had pegged as more of a, I hate, I hate making this comparison all the time. Cause it's kind of lazy. Cause this guy can win a batting title, but Luis Arias in that, Luis Matos is a high contact player. He's a guy who he doesn't strike out a lot. He doesn't necessarily, like he doesn't have to walk a lot uh, simply because he wants to put everything in play. And that that's a good thing. It just, it limited his power upside uh, up until this season, right? Like we hadn't really seen him ever hit more than 15 home runs in a season at any level. Uh, and a lot of that was because he was putting everything in play. And this season, at least in the minor leagues, we saw a big power jump, right? 24 games, seven home runs in AAA. Combined, we saw 55 games, 10 home runs for Luis Matos. That, I mean, that's a significant spike from what we've seen in years past. Uh, in 2022, in high A, it took him uh, it took him 91 games to get to 11 RBI. So in almost half the time, in higher levels, we see Matos hitting more home, like as many or more home runs. Right. So, so that's, that's really exciting. That's the thing I'm not quite sure what to do with yet because 55 games is a good sample, but it's also a minor league sample, not a major league one. Mm-hmm. Power is something that can be difficult to translate, not because you're not as strong, but because the pitches move more, they're harder to connect the barrel of the bat to. So it's less of a question of, can he hit the ball hard and more of, can he put the barrel on the bat of these pitches in the majors that move more than the ones he saw in the minors? I think because he's so good at making contact, we don't have to worry about like a, you know, with Ellie De La Cruz, we have to worry about his ability to make contact. Luis Matos is going to make contact. My first question is going to be, can he make hard contact? Right. Um, Again, I don't want to look at the 13 plate appearances he's done so far 
uh, and put any real weight on them right. because going three games without an extra base hit is normal for any player. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm going to be looking for. He look, he, if, if he's not actually a better power hitter than I thought, which I think he very well could be, if he's not, he is still a 10 to 15 home run, 10 to 15 stolen base kind of player with good, you know, good to potentially very good ratios, right? That's the kind of thing you can do. The slugging might be unimpressive. That's the part I'm still not sure of yet, but I think the batting average especially is something that can't, that probably will be good. I think that's the skill set Luis Matos brings to the table. He can make a ton of contact. He can slap the ball all over the field. He's someone who I think can, can really be uh, a plus for fantasy teams. If I had to, you know, if actually I've been trying to think about who I would compare Luis Matos to from like a fantasy perspective. And the guy that keeps coming to mind is his very own teammate, Tyro Estrada, right? Different positions, sort of different players, but Tyro Estrada is a guy who, again, last season, his breakout, 14 home runs, 21 stolen bases. He hit 260, but he only slugged 400, right? But overall, he was very good because he puts the ball in play a lot and he got into the top to middle of the batting order on a team that makes offense. They do it like the the Giants manufacture offense in a very weird way, uh, but that's because they're a smart organization that tries to get the most out of a lot of pieces they pick up from other teams, Uh, but that's fine, right? Uh, I, I think that's the sort of player or even even his, you know, another teammate uh, like a Lamont Wade Jr. That's the kind of player that I think we could see Luis Matos become. Now, mm-hmm. I think that there might be a higher ceiling than that if he can show us the power that he's been showing in the minor leagues this season. But even if not, I think you can expect that level of player who, while not someone that we're clamoring for on draft day, while not someone that we're doing a bunch of write-ups about, he's a useful player, mm-hmm. a player who... In a 12-team league, even if there's only three outfielders, you might see him go in and out of the lineup from time to time uh, in fantasy because, you know, we're moving on to the next guy who's hot. But he's someone that will be rostered quite a bit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he's that kind of guy that by the end of the season, half your league is rostered in at some point because he got hot, he was putting the ball in play, and he was worth adding. So I think that's sort of like my my more, like, pessimistic outcome uh i mean being tyro Estrada is not a bad thing that'd be a great outcome but like mm-hmm. that's my you know that's my if you know if i hadn't seen all this power in the minor leagues that's what i'd be telling you is the upside a tyro Estrada, lamont way jr type player because we've mm-hmm. seen more power this season i think there could be even more but if you if you go in expecting that i think you have a great chance to get really good value right mm-hmm. if if you need to make like your you know, your weekly fab bids or something like that. I mean, but this comes out on Monday, so you've probably already done it. But if that's mm-hmm. what, you know, if you're trying to figure out what this kind of player is, that's what I think you can start with and then say, and there's a higher power ceiling. Right. Yeah. And uh, the other obstacle that we have, and you kind of, uh, I think, I'm not sure if you alluded to it, is just that the Giants, you know, like to platoon their players too. So you just hope that if you do make the commitment to them, that he does get, you know, everyday playing time. And so far he's had three straight starts, but like I yeah. said, yeah, and that's nice. So Luis Matos is uh he's a center fielder. And, and this team actually doesn't have I think this team's got like two of them right now, right? So Matos can play center and they're willing to put Mike Yastrzemski in center. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are the two guys that can play center, Yastrzemski being a lefty, but I don't think they go into a straight platoon either way mm-hmm. simply because most of their bench is right-handed. So you don't really bring in other righties to replace a righty. Right. It's just not something this team does that often. Um, There are ways they could mix it up, but basically all the ways they mix up the outfield, there's still room for Matos either in the outfield or at DH. So I Mm -hmm. I think he should play more often than not. Okay, good. Good stuff. Um, So let's move on to Bo Naylor. 
uh, rookie. Well, he has some. Uh, he's he has um, made his debut already uh, previously, but Bo Naylor, Guardians catcher, um, probably still rookie eligible. But the Guardians DFA Mike Zanino. And uh, so Naylor gets the call on Saturday. He's going to be making his debut uh, today on Sunday, uh, June 18th. Uh, it's got some, uh, some decent power, actually some good speed for a catcher and uh, looks to be in line for regular playing time in 2022, 20 stolen bases. Uh, and like I said, moderate power uh, so far this season in AAA in 60 games, 13 home runs and, and 48 RBI. Uh, batting average is, you know, basically mediocre. He's batting 254 this season, but for his minor league career, uh, five seasons worth batting 241 with a 781 OPS. And when I look at his, uh, you know, his stats kind of reminds me of, uh, you remember Russell Martin who, uh, you know, played a bunch of years for the Dodgers and then played for the Yankees a couple of years and the, and the, uh, pirates and bounced around, played for the blue jays but uh that kind of a guy um so just wondering your take on uh, bo naylor so first and foremost i think he's going to get every opportunity to play and succeed because catcher has been a black hole in terms of offensive production for the guardians mm-hmm. they cannot find a catcher who can hit 150 right? not even 200 150 mm-hmm. right zunino wasn't doing it cam gallagher isn't doing it they cannot find anyone to hit at catcher so they're going to give him a shot I like seeing, so in 2022, we saw a bit of a spike, uh, a strikeout spike in AAA. I'm glad to see that that has gotten better in 2023. So with Bo Naylor, this is not, you know, he is not the fantasy catcher profile that like Francisco Alvarez is, Mm -hmm. right? I, I don't think he's quite that level of fantasy catcher, although I do think he could be a very good one. I think he immediately jumps into that streaming tier of catcher simply because he does have power, he does have upside, and there's still lots of guys in that streaming tier, right? So if you've been holding, you know, if you're looking for a replacement for, you know, you've you've been rostering Alejandro Kirk this whole time and you're still not sure what to do, you haven't made any other move, that you could go uh, and make that move. I still like Francisco Alvarez more. Um, I I know a guy who I'd actually be targeting above Bo Naylor right now if I was in a fantasy league is actually Travis Darnot. Who's going to start seeing some extended playing time with, uh, I believe, Sean Murphy hitting the IL. So that's, I'd probably go in that direction first. Mm-hmm. But it's, if you're, you know, in a keeper league or you're kind of looking at uh, like long term, Bo Naylor is someone who could become a, a good catcher. Right, a good fantasy catcher, but again, he's not Adley Rutschman. He's not. Uh, I don't. Even, I don't think he's quite the level of Francisco Alvarez. There's a couple other guys coming up who I think are going to be really exciting. Whenever they get a call for Pittsburgh and Andy Rodriguez and Henry Davis, there's other like he's he's good and he does have power. And now we'll just have to see if he can control the strikeouts at the major league level. And if he can, he will be the type of. I think he has that ability, even by the end of the season, to be that type of catcher that you just plug in and don't think about anymore. But it, there is a question as to whether he'll be able to, you know, can he do that yet? And the strikeout rate will really be the, you know, sort of the, the gauge on whether he can do and be an impactful fantasy catcher this season. It's hard. I mean, fantasy catcher is the tight is like tight end in fantasy football. And that it's very hard to just kind of come up right away and do it, you know, be successful because mm. you, you're not just learning how to hit, right? 
Um, and, and I should correct. I, I thought I heard that Murphy was going to go on the IL. Uh, right now, he's just expected to be out for a couple of days. Yeah. But that um, could turn into an IL stand. It, it uh, could turn into IL. Right, an IL right yeah. hamstring issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Darno's been hitting well. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, we know what he is. He's, you know, he's a guy with some power. He'll get a chance to play a little bit more right now. So again, Bo Naylor is not someone I'm dumping a bunch of fab dollars in, in single catcher leagues, but he's mm-hmm. definitely someone who I'm keeping an eye on. If I'm looking for a long-term answer at catcher where I don't have to stream, he has yeah. that kind of upside. Yeah. And you know, the uh, cat fantasy catcher position, you know, all you have to do is, is take a look at all the excitement uh, that was generated around when Gary Sanchez started to hit, you know, I know everyone was excited. Everyone's looking for, you know, uh, the catcher depth, you know, in fantasy and, you know, Gary is back to being scary. You know, I was actually going to, you know, I figured maybe we'd talk about him, but then I looked what he did over the past week, batting uh, 083 and that Gary is scary. That, that was John Sterling's home run call for him. Oh, that Gary is scary. But, but yeah. did you see the, uh, I digress, but uh, John Sterling, when uh, he got hit by that foul ball that reached the press booth. Uh, no, <laughs> oh, my got, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look it up. Uh, and uh, the audio is, is I, I'm glad. First of all, I'm glad that he didn't get seriously hurt, but the audio is pretty amusing. And then, uh, you know, he was a professional, finished the game. And, you know, there's a pick floating around of him, you know, wearing a bandage and holding the ball. But, uh, you know, like I said, <laughs> it, it, it's worth uh, listening to. Now the 3-2 swung on, a pop foul back here. Ow! 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 It really hit me. I didn't know it was coming back that far. So once again, it'll be a 3-2. And Holmes ready to deal. A ground ball to third. Donaldson squares, throws to first, in time. Ball game over. Yankees win. The Yankees when you know that foul ball actually hit me it kind of glanced off my forehead so i took one for the team speaking of gary sanchez uh, i will say he's not striking out a bunch Mm -hmm. uh but he's also not hitting so that's not great but those last couple games he's not striking out Mm -hmm. that's something right right, but you're right people were really Uh, excited because middle of the lineup he's got power yeah there's still as much as we've seen we've seen a lot of growth in like that middle tier of catcher, but mm-hmm. streaming is still going to be used by almost half of teams in leagues. Sure. Mostly. And, and look, Denny Jansen just came back off the IL and hit uh, three home runs uh, over his last five games. I mean, the batting average is still suspect, but if you're looking for catcher help right there, Danny Jansen. Yeah. I mean, again, you're, you're streaming. There's, there's mm-hmm. not, there's more guys that I think you don't have to stream. At, at at catcher, but they're still, you know, it's still a bit of a scary position, right? Yep. Like if you have Sal Perez, Dalton Varsho, Will Smith, JT Real Mudo, Adley Rutschman, Sean Murphy, uh, you know, that it's like, you know, six guys who I think every day you start, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're not entertaining the con and actually Jonah Heim, I think, has sort of fallen into that tier where mm-hmm. you're not really entertain like you're not looking at catcher every week. Right. But there are still lots of folks in your leagues who need to look at catcher every week, right? If you had been riding Elias Diaz, it's time to move on, mm-hmm. right? Like he's, he's not there. Cal Raley. He's been, he's been a top 12 catcher this season, but he's not someone that you need to just be plugging in all the time. Right. What about the uh, Yiner Diaz from the Astros? Uh, I know that the, the, the Astros still love Martin Maldonado, 
But when you look at this guy, uh, you know, minor league career numbers, 321, 358, 510, triple slash, has uh, five home runs in 33 games. Do you think that eventually he gets enough playing time to be fantasy relevant? As a streaming catcher, it -hmm. doesn't take much. Yeah. Right? You got to play, what, once or twice a series. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's... He's kind of a, you know, again, he's someone, he doesn't strike out too much, which at mm-hmm. catcher is a big deal, right? He does put lots of balls in play. He's playing more lately. Uh, they're giving him shots at like DH mm-hmm. lately. So that's been interesting. So I do think he's on that streaming radar. I'm not sure there's a path to being a catcher that like you set and forget because right. I just don't think the the tools are there, but he does have a decent hit tool, right? He's got some power. I don't ever think like, I don't think it'll ever lead to like a ton of home runs in a single season, but it could be okay. Like for a catcher, he had a lot of power last season in the minors. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be tough to expect that kind of thing. I mean, he has five home runs in his first 33 games. So like, if you tried to project that out, you could see like, I mean, that'd be pretty good. Like 20 to 25 home runs. I think more realistically, you're looking at a if he got a full season, I think you're probably looking at like a 15 home run catcher right. with a good batting average mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for a catcher. Yep. Right. So, so he could be decent, but like that, that's kind of where we are. He could be decent. Right. Keep him on your watch list. That's all. Yeah. Stream him if you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Scott, I, I think that there's a bar stool with your name on it with some baseball games uh, being broadcast right now. And I, uh, as we speak, I think the Yanks are uh, playing their makeup game. Uh, they're playing the Red Sox this weekend. Got they got shellacked on Friday night. But what are you going to do? But uh, so uh, enjoy yourself that way. My my buddy Scott, you could follow him uh, on Twitter at if the chew fits, and you can follow me at Joe Galena. And uh, hey, as always, we hope that all of your fantasies become realities, and we'll see you next time.